Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, no relationship to Kim Jong-un. I'm a left-wing pundit and a writer at The Atlantic and Vogue. And I'm Andy Levy, former Fox News and CNN HLN guy and current cable news conscientious objector. And I'm producer Jesse Cadden, and I'm here to make sure things don't go too far off the rails. We're here to have fun, smart conversations with the wisest and funniest people in science and media and politics that help make what's happening today clearer. Our world has been turned upside down, and on The New Abnormal, we'll talk about the people who got us into this mess and how we'll hopefully get ourselves out of it. What a great show we have today. First, we're going to talk to Dan Nathan, who you, of course, know from the On The Tape podcast and OK Computer podcast, as well as being a contributor to CNBC's Fast Money. And he's going to talk to us about his thoughts on what the economy looks like right now. Then we're going to talk to Matt Fuller, senior politics editor at The Daily Beast, and he's going to tell us about what the hell's going on with these Senate races and the abortion bill in Congress. But first, let's have some fun. Andy Levy. Molly Jongfest. One of the favorite conversations that members of the intelligentsia, I'm using that ironically, on the right like to have is instead of talking about overturning Roe, which is this enormous paradigm shift that's super unpopular, they want to talk about protests and how the left is out of control. I mean, I feel like this is the fight they want to have, is that the left is protesting too much. Now, these protests largely are women chanting. You know, there are no guns. I mean, it's not like, these are not like January 6th. Not that that should be the measure, but I feel like when you have the conversation about protests, you are literally giving a gift to these conservatives who are doing radical policy. Uh, Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I guess the thing is, I'm not really mad at the people on the right who are doing this because it's exactly what you say. That's, That's their playbook. And what I'm mad at is the people on the left and the center left who go along with it. And that really, really pisses me off. I mean, what we've got going on now is we've got 100% 100% peaceful protests in in front of uh, some of the Supreme Court justices' homes, not on their property, outside their property, and being 100% peaceful. You've already got people, in, up to and including like Jen Psaki, saying this is not a good thing and, and we need to back away from this. And, and it's like, sh- no, be quiet. Like, right. this is not a problem. You can argue, and I might even agree with you, that the, the protests are meaningless, like in, in the sense that they're not going to, no one's, no justice is changing their mind because of these protests. And I think the protesters know that. They're, you know, they're not stupid. Um, but regardless, nothing is, no one is being hurt by these protests, unlike, as you pointed out, January 6th or Charlottesville, remember, very good people, very fine people on both sides. Right, on both sides. Yeah. Jews will not replace us. Right, exactly. No one is chanting the equivalent of Jews will not replace us. No one is storming a building while armed and beating up police or whatever. This is literally people gathering peacefully and peaceably outside of a home on public property and chanting. I mean, who cares? Well, there's also chalk gate. Well, okay, but that's different. <laughs> chalk is violence. And-, <laughs> and we need to pour one out for Senator Susan Collins, who had chalk written on her sidewalk across the street from her house in Maine. Yeah. And then when she complained, somebody went to her second home, her D.C. home, and drew in chalk in front of that home. Poor Susan. I assume she's concerned, perhaps troubled. <laughs> She's definitely concerned. Uh, She has concerns. I know that. At the very least, none of the protesters Mm -hmm. have lied to Susan Collins the way that (laughs) Kavanaugh and people like that did. 
uh, which she also has concerns about. But she has equal concerns about the fact that people lied to get on the Supreme Court and people drawing uh, on a sidewalk across her home. She is equally concerned about both of those things. And that's why you got to love Susan Collins. She can find the concern (laughs) in any issue. My favorite thing about Susan Collins is nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Again, it's not a surprise that like Tom Cotton wants the people demonstrating outside the Justice's homes to be arrested, jailed, murdered, sent to Gitmo. The only surprise is that he has yet to call for the military to do it. Yeah, he loves that. Yeah. I was actually a little surprised to see that there were a couple of Republican senators who were like, no, we can't do that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Mike Braun of Indiana, Cynthia Loomis of Wyoming. They're like, yeah, we got this little thing called the First Amendment. But again, it's not a surprise. Like Tom Cotton doing this, that's the playbook. And and look, they, right. they also they're doing this for a reason. The fact is, most of America does not like p- protests. Right. And you could say the same thing about the Freedom Riders or anything that happened in the '60s. You know, any poll from back then showed that you didn't. They didn't like the protesters. At any point, it's like fuck you. You don't like protesters. Well, that's the point of protesters is to you know, make you realize that there are things going on that you don't want to care about. And, you know, as a short-term political strategy, it's not bad because you put the focus on the protesters who a lot of Americans don't like, and maybe you get a lot of those Americans who are probably more liberal or more about abortion rights than the Republicans are to focus on the protesters and to think, well, I don't like what they're doing with abortion, but Look at these Democrats. These Democrats are, are are chanting in front of a home. You know, I got to vote Republican. Do you remember when the right was so into the trucker protests? That was like two months ago or as we now know it, 57 years ago. But <laughs> when the right was so excited because these truckers took over an entire town in a small city in Canada to protest, nobody knows. Still no one knows. <laughs> I'm just saying the right flips back and forth on protests pretty fast. Yes, but they liked the truckers because they were protesting in Canada. Right, it's true. That's right, that's a good point. They weren't here. So they weren't, they weren't. Once the protesters came to D.C. and the protests completely fizzled, there weren't a lot of Republicans out there supporting them the way they were when they were in Canada. Supposedly they're coming back. The protesters. I know, I heard that. Yeah, they were mad that they didn't get the kind of respect. Maybe they figured out what they're protesting. No, probably not. Yeah. I, <laughs> I can't imagine a world where they figured out what they're protesting. Yeah. When it's the Tea Party stuff, the right likes it, likes it and et cetera. Obviously, I'm fine with protests from the left, but there are times when the protests on the left annoy me. Usually at the point when there's a drum circle, that's when I tune out. Well, that's your moral failing because I well, personally, I'm, I'm sure as a is. child I'm of the 1970s, I love a drum right. circle. Look, I don't want to pull rank Late here. Late 1970s. I don't want to pull rank here, but I was put on academic probation my freshman year at Columbia for being part of the divestment protests. And, and we chained the school, uh, the main classroom building shut. Wow. So you don't come at me, Molly <laughs> Young Fest. It's John. <laughs> Whatever it is. And you don't, you know, I've been there. I've been there. I've been in the trenches at an Ivy League school. Yeah, it's, I didn't even go to an <laughs> Ivy League college, so I get it, man. I didn't even go to college at all. Well, yeah, we'll talk about that later. Yeah, exactly. This row opinion leaks. Again, we still don't know who the leaker is. It's funny because a member of the, like, far-right industrial Twitter complex was, like, tweeting out, the name of a of a clerk of one of the liberal justices as like proof that it was from the liberal side. You saw that, right? I did. I think it was one of Sotomayor's, Sotomayor's clerks, but I could be wrong. And so he was like, I have no proof of this, but here's her LinkedIn page. <laughs> Swarm right. her with yeah. death threats. And he's like, I have no inside information. I was like, oh, well, there you go. <laughs> but- It's interesting because then there's, you know, a whole school of thought which says, like, actually, this was a conservative who leaked this. In my mind, it makes more sense for a liberal to leak it because it's such a big deal. 
But, I mean, there are some theories that a conservative might have leaked it. Well, that was my—the night that it happened, I sort of tweeted about this, and I don't know. But everyone that night was assuming it was someone from, you know, on the liberal side. And I was like, you know what? I don't know what the liberal side gains from this, whereas the conservative side— what it does is it shores up. It makes sure if there's any wavering votes, like they're not going to be want to, they're not going to want to be seen as caving to public pressure. So they're going to stay in the five four majority. So that that to me is the theory. That's why it could be uh, someone on the conservative side. I also realized I don't really give a fuck. Yes, let's, you know, find out who did it. I understand that it's important to the court to find out who did it. They're very mad. I mean, that's the the best part of this whole thing. The only good thing that has come out of this court's decision to overturn Roe is that it's made them completely crazy. Yeah, and and it's sort of, you know, I mean, look, John Roberts has not exactly been the uh, strong, I think is the word. Like, I don't I don't think the Roberts court, he's not going to go down in history as like someone who had a strong hand on the court, I right. don't think. No, for sure. And I and I think this just sort of gets to that. Like, I, I have a feeling, you know, that if, if there had been a different chief justice, this might not have happened. But again, ultimately, like, yeah, I, I get that the it's important to the court to find out who the leaker was. I, I just don't get why that's particularly important to me or to the American people. Like, you know, it's it's far what the decision is or what this you know uh, draft opinion is is far more important to me than than who leaked it. And this goes back to like, you know, Snowden and stuff like that, where it's always the people who right. don't like it are always focused on the leaker. Right, right, right. I never think that the important part for the American people is who the leaker was. And I, I get right. why it's important for the institution, but but not for not for me. And that's, you know, and that's again with the protests. Like, I don't care if protesters want to protest in front of a Supreme Court justice's house, they're not harming anyone. They're doing absolutely, even if you don't like them, they're not doing any harm to anyone. So stop focusing on that. And again, I'm talking about people on the center left, like the, forget the right. Of course, they're going to focus on that. But the people on the center left who are like, and here's what really gets me is they keep saying, well, if you're okay with them doing this, just think how you'll feel when the right starts doing this. Excuse me? The right has been doing it forever. And worse, the the right has been violent. The, the, again, as you said, the right has been chanting, the Jews will not replace me. Like, that 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 ship sailed a long that that ship is as is pulling up in Madagascar right now and the idea of saying and but this is the democrats this is what they do well if we do this then the right will but the right's been doing this you know this was the always the argument well if we get rid of the filibuster then the right will well guess what the right gets rid of the filibuster when it suits them and the right does whatever it wants when it suits them and they don't do it because the left did it first they do it first. Right. No, no, that's certainly true. It drives me nuts because it's the same thing every time from like the people on the center and the, you know, the concerned liberals and whatever, however you want to. I feel like you're just trolling the bulwark here. We can tag Charlie. <laughs> Sorry. But I like those guys. I like the guys. I the like those work. guys too, but they're wrong about yeah. the protest stuff. I mean, they I are. just think, they are. yeah, you know. But they're also not it, Democrats. It, Right. Yeah, I mean, so, exactly. you know, I'm, I'm talking here about Democrats. I'm talking about the Gen Sakis and the people in Congress and and the pundits and whatever who considered themselves Democrats and and are out there saying these things. And it's just like I like you don't even you don't even have to say read a history book. You can just say look at a newspaper from the last couple of years. You know, just they've already done everything you're afraid they're going to do. Yeah. No, I, for sure, true. For sure, for sure. So Elizabeth Warren, I love her, and it annoys me when people criticize her, but I really like her, and I think she's really tough. And one of the things she has is the Judicial Ethics and Anti-Corruption Act, which has a lot of different provisions. But my favorite, because it's my obsession in life, is she wants to ban these uh, judges from stock trading and, you know, making money on the public market, which, again, also the House voted on. And, of course, the Senate will never vote on because, God forbid, Republicans and also Democrats have been quite shitty about this, too. Don't make money on the fucking stock market. 
Yeah, because, I mean, that's why you serve in the U.S. House of Representatives. I mean, come on. Doesn't this make you crazy, Andy? It makes me crazy. It does. And you're right. Like, if you sent a stool sample on this issue to a lab, it would come back bipartisan because both sides suck on this. And, you know, from Nancy Pelosi on down, it's just. It's unbelievable. And it's like such an easy win. Like, it really most is. Most people don't want their representatives making money off of their jobs, which are to serve the public. Right. And basically trading off their insider status, knowing what bills are coming up. And what, I mean, it's it's common. It's It really is. It doesn't get any more common sense than that. And so Elizabeth uh, Warren and Pramila Jayapal have introduced this bill, and part of it would, would ban federal judges from doing the same thing, from trading individual stocks and stuff like that. I agree with you. That's great. And that, again, should be a no-brainer. So there's another part of this bill that I really like too. And it says that when when someone who's who's uh, a litigant before the Supreme Court requests the recusal of one of the justices, the judges or the whatever would have to issue a written recusal decision. So they would have to put in writing why they agreed with it and someone should be recused or why they don't agree that that the justice should be recused. And given what we've learned in the past several months about uh, Justice Thomas's wife's involvement in a lot of the January 6th stuff, this is obviously a very important issue. And Justice Thomas has famously recused himself from precisely none of the January 6th related <laughs> cases that have come before the Supreme Court. Why? It's a mystery. It's hard to understand. And it's hard to understand also why, like, if you see polling on the Supreme Court that, like, most of the country has no faith in in the court. Way dropped off over the last 20 months. It's down 40%. But who's counting? Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. Who's keeping track? But look, again, so, so that also to me seems like common sense. Like, if Clarence Thomas is not going to recuse himself from a case that he knows, like he knew before we did how much his wife was involved in this stuff, whether he claims he didn't or not, of course he did. And if he's not going to recuse himself, then he would now have to put in writing why he's not going to recuse himself if the litigant says, hey, Justice Thomas, you got to recuse yourself, or we think you have to recuse yourself. So I think both of those provisions are excellent. And again, they're common sense. Like, they're absolutely common sense. Elizabeth Warren is like, has a moral compass. We are Democrats because we want our leaders to act in a moral way and make moral decisions. I mean, so the hallmark of Trumpism was just this sort of like narcissistic kind of lack of morality and lack of interest in doing the right thing. And like, this is the right thing. Yeah. I completely agree. I mean, I like Elizabeth Warren too. I, you know, there's occasionally she does something where I think she's dead wrong, but that's okay. I, I overall, I, I like her, and I agree. I mean, we spent, you know, we spent four years of Donald Trump, who was not at all about the public interest and all about self interest. It would be nice if we could contrast that. Joe Biden is whatever, but I don't think anyone thinks Joe Biden is doing what he's doing to- Right, is out to make money. Right, exactly. There is a definite contrast there. And the problem is that when you have things like this, like you said, like when both sides fail to act on a thing like, you know, members of Congress or their spouses are holding stock, you lose part of that contrast. And it just looks like, why should I bother voting for any of these people? All they care about is themselves. Yes, exactly. You're losing the moral high ground when you are doing the same fucking sleazy shit that the Republicans are doing. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Let's face it. After a night with drinks, I don't bounce back the next day like I used to. I have to make a choice. I can either have a great night or... A great next day. That is until I found Zbiotics. Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works: When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make Zbiotics your first. First drink of the night. Drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. So, I first gave Zbiotics to try when I was having an existential crisis at a Dave and Buster's. I drank it before my first dangerous waters punch, and you wouldn't believe how, on top of my game—no pun intended—I felt the very next morning. Vacations, weddings, birthdays, and reunions. There's so much going on. Get the most out of your spring plans by stocking up on pre-alcohol now. Go to zbiotics.com slash abnormal to get 15% off your first order when you use abnormal at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com slash abnormal and use the code abnormal at checkout for 15% off. Thank you, Zbiotics, for sponsoring this episode and our good times. Dan Nathan is the host of Market Call, On the Tape podcast, OK Computer podcast, as well as a contributor to CNBC's Fast Money. Welcome back to the new abnormal, Dan Nathan. Molly Jong Fast, it's my sincere pleasure to be back with you. I'm so happy you're here. I'm honestly so happy you're here. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, I, I think I know why I'm here. Um, I think that, <laughs> I think that it's kind of, I've been trying to figure this out on pods of late. No one can kind of get it right here. Is like, are we DEFCON 1 or DEFCON 5? It just seems like, you know, we're going back. It's, which is the bad DEFCON? But the good news is no one knows. Yeah, no one knows. But as it relates to like markets right now, it's the one where we're close to global thermal nuclear war. It feels like that right now. Yes. I want you first to talk about inflation because we had some good, good, and I'm putting that in quotes because good is relative, inflation numbers yesterday, right? Yeah. And can you explain that to our listeners? Let's go back to the first time I was on the new abnormal. I think it was it was kind of mid to late January. And you yeah. basically said, I need someone to kind of lay out why inflation all of a sudden is bad. You're like the Fed for years prior to the pandemic was hoping that inflation would go higher than right. where it was, right? And so we talked a little bit about it because we had the, all of these weird dynamics because of the um, pandemic, because of supply demand, because of broken supply chains, because of deglobalization, because of tariffs, the list went on and on and on, right? So goods and services, um, the prices of just started going up precipitously. And the Federal Reserve, which really kind of moderates um, interest rates, right, in, in their effort to kind of do two things, right? Their, their dual mandate is stable prices and full employment, all right? And so they almost got back to the full employment, but the problem is that price Prices became very unstable because, and, and I think the war with Russia invading Ukraine really made all of that much worse, right? So all of a sudden now we have the prices of commodities, right, are just going skyrocketing. That started with oil, but ended up moving to wheat. Ukraine is like a very large producer of wheat. Correct. So so, the, so one of the big issues right now is, is Ukraine and Russia, for that matter. And so all the sanctions on Russia are going to hurt their ability to kind of supply other parts of the world. So there's real fears right now that there's going to be massive food shortages, you know, six, nine, 12 months from now. Some of the wealthy countries um, are hoarding um, the, probably some of these foodstuffs, that sort of stuff. So it's creating, you know, higher prices. And what happens is when you have higher prices 
for, for, you know, these sorts of goods or commodities, you know, you just start to see demand destruction. And so one of the right. big worries right now is that you would have on the back of this a slowing economy. And so a term that we haven't heard much uh, economists use for a very long time is the idea of stagflation, right? Where you have right. a slowing economy and then you have prices that remain persistently high. And that's the sort of scenario where through the lens that I look at all this stuff through the, the through the stock market or through risk markets in general, that's a real bad scenario for, for risk assets. So stagflation means, just explain it one more time for those of us who weren't paying attention. Sure. Think about it this way, right? So the Federal Reserve just made their first half a point rate hike okay right. in 22 years all right they did that last week at their fed meeting the last time they did that was may of 2000 they did it in may of 2000 because they were worried about an asset bubble remember the dot com thing they were yes. worried about that now what they're worried about is price like inflation okay like going really high but back in 2000 what they didn't know they thought the economy was really strong which is what they think right now but they were hiking rates into a slowing economy all right so if the economy were to slow because interest rates go higher which is really what they kind of want to do basically the only arrow in this sort of container of arrows yeah <laughs> for lack of a better word is interest rates because what, raising they call interest that a quiver? rates Isn't a that a quiver? quiver that's yeah. right yeah. <laughs> is raising interest rates because raising interest rates is the only way that the fed can slow inflation right but it will most certainly slow down economic growth right so right. let's put those things together so you basically have you know the stag is the slowing economy the inflation is the higher prices and therefore you have a period where you know you have a lot of business uncertainty you have a lot of consumer uncertainty it's it's likely to be matched up with a recession. The word recession sounds scary to a lot of your listeners here because they think it means bear market in the stock market. They think it means job losses. They think it means lower wages. They think it means, you know, like higher prices at the pump. And those are all bad things. And when that sort of gets into the psyche of right. consumers or the right. psyche of like the C-suite and, and corporations, they mean they start spending less. Then consumer spending goes down. Yeah. Correct. I want to just like, Go back to last month's number, economic numbers were actually negative. Right. So the GDP, gross domestic product for the Q1, was was a negative print. It was explained away by a lot of economists, right, um, who were basically, you know, who were basically think that we're going to come out of this okay. Um, but a, a recession would be two consecutive quarters of negative GDP. All right. So if we had another one in Q2, which we are in right now, we're basically halfway through that, then we would be officially in a recession. Nobody knows we're in a recession until after the fact, right? Until the data is right. out and it's parsed, that sort of thing. So again, I think that the word recession, the R word is a bit more psychological than anything else, but there are potentially negative knock-on effects once we actually acknowledge the fact that we had a recession. I want to go back to Q1 for a second, because I think this is important. A lot of Republicans have sort of said that the inflation, and again, this is not true, but until it's debunked, it's not debunked have said that the, that this inflation is caused by social spending. They've implied it. Some of them have said it. But if you look at the Q1 numbers, one of the reasons why it went negative was because the government was not spending. Can you explain that a little more? Yeah, yeah, and I think that, again, I mean, so so the government had been spending a lot on fiscal stimulus for the two years during the pandemic, and all of that started rolling off, right? So you have really difficult comparisons, right, as it relates to their spending. And so I think another important point is that in Q1, a lot of that spending actually had been diverted to doing things like um, – you know, like supporting Ukraine, right? We're, right? we're spending tens of billions of dollars doing there. So we've seen a little bit of stuff moving from here to there. Um, that's a bit of it. And I think that, you know, you put, you mentioned the point Republicans, right? So for the balance of this year into the midterms, you know, almost everything that happens on a fiscal standpoint with, with the Dems having the House and the Senate and the White House is obviously going to be to blame, you know, like, like the, the Democrats. I mean, it's just really right. simple, but right. I think it's really important to remember that during the 2000 2016 campaign, Trump 
you know, used to yell and scream about what the Fed was doing, artificially keeping interest rates low so the economy could keep going, which would benefit Democrats, right? And as soon as he got into office, so he was saying the Fed needs to raise interest rates. So as soon as he got into office, you know, in 2017, what did he do? He was browbeating the Fed to stop their intent to raise interest rates, right? Because it doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense. Um, The Fed is trying to normalize interest rates right now because they are worried about runaway inflation at a time where we're likely to see an economic slowdown after all of the monetary and fiscal stimulus that we've seen over the last two plus years during the pandemic. And really, they're walking a tightrope here. The idea is, how do they get to a soft landing? How do they basically tamp down commodity prices, right? Tamp down inflation, keep demand strong enough where the economy doesn't collapse, right? And then they're in a position where if we do have a really difficult patch, I think it's really important to also understand this is not just domestic. Parts, large parts of China right. are shut down right now, okay? And China is a really important engine to like the global economic picture, right? From a demand standpoint. So, you know, this is like really orchestrating a soft landing for the global economy, I think behooves all of us right now. We have a inflationary problem in America, But it's also in Europe, in Asia. I mean, this is not like the Republicans are calling it Biden inflation. That's not actually true at all, right? Well, I think that it's what I would say is one of the stickiest parts of of, uh, inflation. You'll hear this a lot is wages, right? Once they go up, it's really hard to go down. And if you think about that, you know, the Trump tariffs and the the, just this push towards deglobalization really caused wages to start going up here, which you can say politically is pretty good. But an American business and American consumers made a deal with the devil some 50 years ago about uh, offshoring, you know what I mean? Like all of these manufacturing jobs that we didn't want to do in return for cheap consumer goods, right? So that that we already made that trade. That happened decades and decades ago, right? So now all of a sudden, I think it's kind of interesting that it could sound like really patriotic to bring a lot of these jobs back to the US, but a lot of Americans, A, don't want to do a lot of these jobs, right? And B, these jobs are going to be automated. Like that's the thing. Prior to the pandemic, what did we hear about? We heard it about wage deflation, automation. We had lots of politicians considering things like universal basic in- income, right? You know what I mean? So I think a lot of this was set in course during the Trump administration as it relates to the stickiest parts of inflation. We know commodities will come in. They will mean revert, right? Because there's only so long we can have the sort of disruption that we have in Europe. Sooner or later, a lot of these embargoes um, you know, about you know, Russian oil, that sort of thing. We'll figure other places to get that right. and natural gas for Europe. Um, but the real risk right now, I think, is that Europe goes into a recession, okay, um, and and that won't be good for the globe. And then if China continues with their zero COVID policy, you know, that's a big issue, right, on, on both levels, imports and exports. And so it really does run the risk of just basically putting the global economy in a position that is not something that central bankers, to your point before, are equipped to deal with. Because when you have slowing economies, both here and abroad, most central banks ease uh, monetary policy. They cut rates, but right. rates are so low right now and prices are high. So you negative, you have negative real rates right now and there's really not much they can do. So they could take the rate down again, but that would just bring inflation back. Yeah, and the Fed also has this situation where they, they have to worry about credibility because one of the biggest transition um, transmission mechanisms they have to their policy is their ability to convince right corporates or consumers or you know financial institutions that they mean what they say, right? And if they right. do an about face, bringing this back right. to the stock market, when Jerome Powell, the, the head of the, the, the Fed, who was appointed by Donald Trump back in 2000, in 18 was on autopilot raising interest rates a quarter point, I think every other meeting or so, the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield in Q4 of 2018 got above 3% for the first time in a very long time. The stock market, Molly, went down 20% in a straight line. So what did the Fed do? They took their pedal off the metal. They said, we're going easy. And the stock market started to rip. They can't do that right now. They run the risk of losing all credibility as it relates to one of their mandates is to maintain stable prices. So the next thing I want to talk to you about is crypto. 
what the hell is happening with crypto? By the way, Matt Greenfield, my long-suffering spouse, just bought a bunch of crypto. I was like, I don't think you timed this quite right, but yes. If he just did, he's timing it okay. I mean, (laughs) here's one of the things I would say about markets in general. And, you know, crypto is is like, you know, one of the newest, like, trillion-dollar markets, right? Right. Um, and, And it's only been around for, like, 10 years. And I will say this, is that some of the smartest people that I know in finance and tech think this is the next big thing, Okay, the way that a lot of the smartest people in tech thought the Internet in the early to mid 90s was the next big thing. The problem is, is that, you know, the, the major bull cases for it continue to get knocked out. And there's right. the, crypto is a really wide reaching sort of thing. There's Bitcoin, right? It was meant to be right. this kind of store of value and alternative sort of currency, but people don't use it as a currency. Then there was other layer one protocols like Ethereum, which are smart contracts, which a lot of the stuff that you hear about NFTs, de- decentralized finance, um, this is built on top of smart cl- contract layer ones like that or Solana. And those things have a lot of utility, right? But they've also been used as a currency, whereas Bitcoin people just hold as a store of value. The problem is, right? Right now, if it, if Bitcoin was supposed to be this amazing inflation hedge, okay, we right. are at 40-year highs for inflation expectations. And since the Fed pivoted, saying that they're going to battle inflation, this was back in November of 2021, Bitcoin has gone down 50, I don't know, 56, 60% or something like that. So it hasn't proven to be a great inflation hedge. And right. the store value argument with the thing down 60% is down year over year also doesn't seem to be playing out here. So crypto's in a tough spot. And then there's all these things about stable coins, which you're probably reading about. One of them just broke the buck. Um, there's a lot of uh, pe- people think it's a big Ponzi. Um, and so, you know, I, I think in bear markets like this, you're going to see some of these scams come out. I also think that you probably recall all of these celebrity finfluencers jumping on board the crypto right. train earlier this year. That probably didn't bode particularly well for this asset class. So, Okay. Last question. Elon Musk. Everyone tells me I'm stupid and I'm wrong, but like I look at all this Elon Musk stuff. How does he get to $45 billion to buy Twitter? Well, he can't. I mean, one of the things that became very clear that despite being the richest man in the world and having, you know, a a massive stake in in Tesla, which he's the CEO and chairman of, he still couldn't come up with the $44 billion that he said um, that he was going to pay for Twitter. And and one of the reasons why is that he doesn't actually have that cash. It's in in Tesla stock. So he started selling Tesla, Tesla stock and Tesla stock started going down a lot. Tesla stock traded as high as $1,200. It was over a trillion dollar market cap in the fall. And right now the stock is trading at 744. So it's about three quarters of a trillion dollars. So for him to raise the capital, he has to to sell Tesla stock. So then he had private equity and some VCs come in that were basically reducing his equity component of it. But the problem here, very simply, is that the stock is not worth $43 billion, okay? So at the end of the day, when all of its public comps are going much lower every day in a NASDAQ that's careening lower, that's down about 27% of the year, it makes absolutely no sense to pay that unless he thinks that if he can take it private and have some really smart co-investors with him and retool this thing and it comes out as a $100 billion business. But here's the problem. Okay. VCs. Can he float the capital until that happens? No. Well, he has to leverage his holdings. And then he has like bank or uh, private equity firms like Apollo have come in and pledged a bunch of equity um, alongside it. But the thing is without Elon, if he is no longer interested, if Tesla goes too much lower and Twitter's value sticks out like a sore thumb being way overexposed, all of those private equity and VC people who've lined up to co-invest with him will be gone if he's not there. Okay. If he can't commit to doing what he says he's going to do, part of the allure is riding his coattails, right? People think he's a genius and he'll be able to fix all the big problems. My big issue with this, I think it's all a big fugazi. I think that he's used it as a big ruse, as an excuse to sell a lot of Tesla stock, which he has done. Okay. He started selling last fall. He put out a tweet saying, should I sell Tesla stock to pay taxes? Then he put out a tweet a couple months ago. Should I sell Tesla stock to buy Twitter stock? Right. And so the stock has gone down. The stock was trading at 11.50 a little more than a month ago. And like I said, right now it's about 7.45. That's hundreds of billions of dollars of market cap that's gone. If it goes much lower, he will not be able to buy Twitter. And I think he used it as a big excuse to sell Tesla stock. And I also think he's massively conflicted. His company, Tesla, cozies up right. to most one of the China. most repressive regimes 
on the planet, if not the most repressive. They don't believe in free speech, but he's buying Twitter to fix it because he thinks free speech is broken here. Again, I think it's a bunch of BS. We don't know for three months, but you think this thing doesn't go through in the end. Well, first of all, he said three months. If anybody who's been following Tesla over the last 15 years knows, Elon Musk is not particularly good at forecasting timelines here. So right. the, the longer the longer it goes, it, you know, the, the less likely it is to kind of close because the value, and not only that, you see this all the time in M&A, Molly, where when companies are locked up in these sorts of battles, there's nobody within Twitter who's particularly um, excited about, you know, no. Elon buying it. He said he's going <laughs> to no. be the CEO. So think about how unmotivated all those employees are right now. Right. So the business is going to continue to get worse before it gets better. Advertisers, right. which they make most of their money on, right. are going to continue to look at other places before there's a clear. And Angelo told us that they, could, they couldn't sell any ads, that they had a big ad problem because of the Elon buy, that that like really undermined the whole business. Well, he's been undermining their management, their whole plan. You know, there's some very smart people there. I mean, let's be very clear. I've been very critical of this company and the management, and you right. know, I don't think they've done a good job. They undermonetize. They're not growing their user base. It's a very complicated user interface. I think you are easily, easily one of the most adept at using that platform but there aren't many, you know, when you think about it, like, you know, think about how many power users there and it's not a really particularly attractive place for advertisers because think about what goes on there. It's just literally hand-to-hand combat all day long, you know? Yeah, and I think there's too much controversy for advertisers, but there certainly would be a way to monetize it. I mean, Twitter Blue is a really good service. Like, you could build that out. I mean, there are people I know who would just pay to have tweets that delete, right? I mean, there are like little services that you could tack on that you could pay for that would probably make a lot of money. No, this this business in the right hands, I think, retooled, you know, it, it comes out of better business. I just think that, you know, Elon, I think this is a vanity thing, too. I, I think that pull up the, the biggest Twitter accounts. I think he wants to be the biggest. And, and yeah. he's, what, above 85 million or something. And here's a guy, I think, who just needs a hug. I, I just think that, like, honestly, I think, like, I think he looks at stuff like that. I think he looks at all of his replies, too. I do. I think right. he reads no, them. And he, really, and he really takes them in. And so here's a guy who's trying to fix some of the biggest problems on this planet and trying to get us to another planet. And yet he's dicking around with Twitter in in the name of free speech. It just seems like a bunch of bullshit. And then the fact, and he's also Trumpy as fuck, as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) He's so scorned in some way, like he's going to let that political terrorist back onto the platform where, you know, I got to be honest with you. They waited until people died. Donald Trump routinely broke their terms of service on trust and safety for five years. And Jack Dorsey, finally, on January 6th, when people died, when Trump used it as a a way to kind of instigate a violent insurrection on our nation's capital because he didn't like the outcome of the election, okay, then they kicked him off? Really? Then they kicked him off? So listen, Molly, you got me all hopped up here. You got me all hopped up. (laughs) Dan, Nathan, you are the best. Please come back. You're my hero. All right. Thanks, Molly. I appreciate it. Matt Fuller is a senior politics editor at The Daily Beast. Welcome back to the new abnormal, Matt Fuller. Thank you, as always, for having me. I wanted to talk to you because there's a lot going on. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But particularly now. What the fuck? Like, (laughs) I mean, I don't even know where to start. I feel like I want to talk to you about this vote yesterday Mm -hmm. in the Senate that Schumer had where he set up a vote that was going to fail. Explain to our listeners what the thinking here is. Yeah, well, this is, as you said, he's very hot on this. This is a very common Senate tactic. Basically, it's a show vote. It's meant to show voters where people stand. And Democrats, when you have the votes, you want to vote on stuff. But when you don't have the votes, and and uh, but voters would like those things, you want to show where the opposite party is at. Um, so this Women's Health Protection Act uh, went down 49 to 51 on party lines with Joe Manchin joining Republicans. Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, who say they support abortion rights, uh, voted with Republicans against this bill. They do have a, a narrower bill they're writing. Um, they had some objections to this particular Women's Health Protection Act, but uh, the bill that they would do would basically just codify the 
protections of Roe v. Wade. And this particular bill had some other items in it that they felt went a little bit too far. Particularly, there's this other bill, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which basically allows certain organizations, healthcare organizations, like, say, a Catholic um, hospital to not provide abortions. And this bill would make it so that any healthcare provider has to provide abortions. And also they had a lot of complaints about this bill. Yeah, they had a lot of complaints, but there's, yeah. there's some other things that this bill did. It would have done away with some of the mandatory waiting periods that uh, are in some states, gotten rid of some of the bias counseling that uh, some people have to go through in some states, the two trip requirements, uh, mandatory ultrasounds, those weird restrictions that have cropped up over years in red states. Yeah. The reality is uh, this bill was never going to pass. You need 60 votes, not not 50 or 51. They're well aware of that. And they're just showing voters that, hey, these Republicans that you love and think the world of on the economy or whatever are also truly the ones who are saying, yeah, we should get rid of uh, Roe v. Wade. Right. Let's talk about this idea for a minute, because there was a good editorial about this in The Washington Post this morning that Paul Kane, I think, wrote about how that this used to be a kind of brilliant strategy that would work and that would get voters to be able to see that the people who are supposed to be taking care of them really don't care. But now that in a sort of post-Trump world, partisanship is sort of more important than how a senator votes on a particular bill. I think that's true to an extent. Um, Certainly everyone's hunkering down and they're familiar partisan positions and going with the party. Um, And I think there's probably less of a backlash now for some senator, you know, voting with their party on this particular issue. But I do want to emphasize that I think the abortion landscape really has changed. This was not a top 10 issue before this draft opinion leaked. Right. And if this actually happens, and I, I, I think we have every, Seems like reason, it will. Yeah, yeah. every reason to believe that it's going to happen. This is a fundamental change in America. And I think there's going to be a lot of pissed off voters, a lot of women who are who are rightfully outraged about uh, this whole thing. And they're going to look to their senators and say, what are you doing about this? And at that point, you know, these races very well could come down to abortion. Uh, certainly there's, yeah. you know, there's, there's good reason to believe that like Glenn Youngkin in Virginia, right? He, he narrowly won the governorship. That's a, yeah, that's um, a really good example. Yeah. And I, you know, he is a, he is a strongly anti-abortion Republican. Um, I don't think he would, would, would win in this sort of climate with, you know, what's happening right now with Roe v. Wade and this Dobbs decision. Right. I mean, there's just a ton of Senate races, too, that you could look at and, and say that this really could move the needle. New Hampshire, Nevada, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, North Carolina, Arizona, even Ohio. This really could shape the balance of Congress uh, next year and uh, certainly could be an issue that Democrats run very strongly on. A hundred percent. I think that's a really good Really, really good point. But I thought was interesting, and I want to talk about this, is that this Roe decision leaks. It's like 10 days now since it leaked. And then Republicans Mm -hmm. go, instead of like just sort of not touching it, because it is actually, right, Roe is very popular, 70%, right? Don't want it overturned. So like, you know, there are nuances for sure on this issue, 100%, but like, Ultimately, it's an extremely, you know, this is like almost, there's almost nothing that's as popular as like just leaving this fucking thing alone. So instead of Republicans just being quiet on it, they immediately went and said crazy stuff. Can talk about that. Here's the thing. They're trying to reshape the debate because, as you said, most people very strongly believe that Roe uh, should stand. So uh, there are other polls out there, right? And and basically each side is trying to paint the other one into this corner. Uh, there was a Pew poll that said, I think it was something like 19% of adults said abortion should always be legal. Right. Okay. So there's this very healthy majority that says, yes, some restrictions should apply. Right. Uh, at the same time, there's just 8% of people said it should should always be illegal, right? So an even more overwhelming majority believes that there should be abortion. Abortion should exist in some cases. So each side is saying, um, you know, the, the tactic is, and we saw this with like Peter Ducey at the White House trying to trying to paint Joe Biden or really Jen Psaki into this corner of right. do you believe that there should be no restrictions on abortion, right? And that and somehow that's the Democratic position. And just the same, you know, I think that voters are smart enough to realize that 
we're not debating whether or not there should be some restrictions on abortion. We're basically saying, you know, yes, abortions are going to exist even if this case decision comes down as we expect. There will still be states that have abortion. And of course, there will still be illegal abortions, okay, uh, as we've always known. But I think there's a very healthy majority of voters who understand that the changes that Republicans are trying to make, that the court will make, and a lot of these red states have already made and have been prevented from making because of Roe v. Wade, those are coming into effect. And there's these are going to be real restrictions that will touch women's lives, uh, will touch everyone's life. Uh, I mean, the, these it's going to make abortion much harder to get. That is that is absolutely true. Um, and and yes, it's true that there will be states. You know, in if you're uh, in California, your day to day life probably won't change much. Uh, and your access to abortion probably won't change much. But there are a lot of states out there where, by the way, voters are going to the poll and deciding Senate seats and, and every every House race is up for, you know, votes every, every two years. There are real people who are going to be looking at this and going, huh, wow, you know, I, I suddenly can't get an abortion. Right. Or I can't get a DNC in the state of Texas. Right. Or, you know, who knows what, I don't even know what the Louisiana laws are at this point, but uh, they certainly seem insane. And I think there's definitely a race uh, among Republican states to implement even tougher or stringent uh, draconian laws uh, on abortion and and doctors providing abortion. Um, I think it's going to be very scary for a lot of people in red states. And I think women are going to feel this very immediately. Uh, and, and know that like at the very least, it's going to, it's going to be me traveling, you know, say a few hundred miles or in the case of Louisiana, 600 miles to get an abortion. Right. A right that I had six months ago has disappeared (laughs) seemingly overnight. These are very real questions and it's not just some sort of theoretical debate for these people. And I do think that's going to move voters at some point. And frankly, we can watch Republicans try to paint Democrats into a corner, but I think voters are pretty smart about this and that it's a real change. It's not some theoretical bill that uh, Congress is debating. This is very real to a lot of people. And those things usually do move voters. What's on the agenda right now? So Roe is going to be overturned. There's only one draft that's leaked. I thought that was an interesting data point, too, that there's only one draft. Can you explain to our listeners what that means, that there's only been one draft leaked? Yeah, I mean, typically uh, you might have the Supreme Court justices go back and forth and change things and say, well, I wanted to go. I don't want it to go this far. Uh, maybe we can scale this back, whatever. And you sort of find a consensus there. Um, well, right now we've seen that the only draft that's circulated is this one draft. It has five votes, meaning that's how the decision will come down. If, unless one of those five justices changes their mind, it seems like Roberts wants to write his own opinion, um, which would uphold the Mississippi law, but not dismantle Roe. There's all sorts of theories about who, who leaked this and why, but essentially uh, the news that there's only been one draft means that this seems like it's going to be the actual decision. Now, they may change a, a few words here or there, but certainly they've found a consensus on the court that this is what they want to do. And this is a very extreme opinion. This, you know, I think a lot of people expected them to maybe uphold the Mississippi law, right, 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 but right. not dismantle Roe v. Wade. And this is the, you know, this is the, <laughs> the full Monty here. Um, they've really, really gone aggressively after this. And I think they've set up uh, cases in the future to go even further after uh, the like so-called rights to privacy that uh, have been established elsewhere. Right. Well, that's the question is then privacy becomes what comes, ne- you know, if we if we don't have the right to privacy, do we have the right to yeah. same sex marriage? Do we have the right to this? Do we have the right to that? Right. Right to IUDs. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. All questions are swirling out there and are going to become very real for voters very soon. OK, let's talk about these Senate races. The lot of vulnerable seats for Democrats. Right. And let's talk about that. I mean, it seems like Cortez is the scariest in Nevada. That's Nevada. Right. You know, and New Hampshire is another one that definitely a pickup opportunity for Republicans. Though nobody knows who's running in New Hampshire. I was talking to my cousin who lives in New Hampshire and I go like, is there a Republican challenger? And they were like, I, we don't think so. So I feel like that's not a great sign for Republicans. Yeah. I grew up in Maggie Hassan's town, went to went to school with her son. 
so I'm also from mm. New Hampshire. So yeah, certainly she got an advantage when the governor Sununu there did not run. Right, for sure, because that would have been the end of it. I think. Yeah, it probably would have been, but Nevada probably Adam Laxalt versus Cortez Masto. Uh, she's very strongly in favor of abortion protections. Adam Laxalt is very right. strongly against them. He's very conservative, right? Adam Laxalt, extremely conservative, a, a fringe conservative, someone right. who you know was really on the outside of his party, and. You know, these people have run very successfully in primaries because they're so conservative. And by the way, we're seeing this play out in Pennsylvania in a, in a big way, too. Yeah, I would. I want to talk about that next. These candidates are running and they're running right now in primaries. So you always run to the right and you, you right. spout off about, you know, how we need to eliminate abortion. And then come general election time. You hope everyone forgets. <laughs> yeah, that, <laughs> it's not exactly a, a winning strategy to take positions that are very strongly supported by a majority of voters. And again, right. this is going to be very real news, very real changes to people. As much as Republicans want to talk about inflation or the economy or whatever, uh, which those are real issues, but also by and large, I think people individually are doing pretty well for themselves. It's going to be less real of an issue, I think, than abortion is for many other voters. And there's a lot of voters, too, who the 2018 backlash we saw against Trump, a lot of suburban, affluent, educated women, the so-called country club Republicans, who want those protections. And where they might have gone for a Republican again, that there's some distance from Trump and uh, it's Democrats who control everything, uh, are suddenly like, wait, no, Adam Laxall? Like, I'm going <laughs> to vote for this right. guy? You know, I think it's a real challenge for many of these people. Blake Masters in Arizona, another another good example. Uh, certainly the Pennsylvania race is, is a good example. Let's talk about that Pennsylvania race because in Ohio, Trump went in and he endorsed J.D. Vance and J.D. Vance won against Josh Mandel, even though Josh Mandel completely degraded himself <laughs> and ruined himself in every way and almost had a fist fight during the, during the uh, thing. But now... In Pennsylvania, we have Trump endorsed Oz. We have, and, but it's like not enough. And so explain this situation. Yeah. So you have Trump endorsed Dr. Oz, who I think is still probably the, the favorite. You have the traditional Republican, the quarter zip Republican, David McCormick, a just a very rich guy. And then you have this outsider who has just kind of come out of nowhere, Kathy Barnett. This is a black woman who's running. She, ran unsuccessfully for a house seat um, a few years back, um, really out of nowhere. She's she's being outspent like a million to one. I think it's actually something like 358 to one. And she has come out and as, as truly the most conservative option. And then again, in primaries, you know, you have David McCormick who's running uh, with those very traditional Republicans, uh, the very, the Republican light sort of mantra. You have Dr. Oz who himself, you know, he was, pro-choice up until uh, a few years ago. He was at least speaking about concerns he had about, you know, women getting illegal abortions and whatnot. And now he's, you know, uh, he's this gun-toting Republican and whatnot. But certainly he is not, he's being outflanked on his right by Kathy Barnett, who says um, she's the product of, her mother was raped when she was 11. Her mother had her and she basically doesn't support abortion in cases of rape. And she's hammering Oz and McCormick on this particular issue. And she's finding traction. I mean, Republican voters there, the people who show up on primary day are very pro-life, are very conservative. And she's someone who, you know, has spoken positively about January 6th and she's out there. Democrats' favorite person to win. They would love Kathy Barnett to be the, the nominee. I read an interview yesterday or the day before that Selena Zito, not known for her anything good. And I've seen other in the the Washington Examiner is also going after this candidate that they can't get her military service records. And they also she won't answer any questions about where she grew up or, you know, other sort of things that might be pertinent to her becoming a United States senator. Yeah, I, I mean, I think she's avoided a lot of the scrutiny that frontrunners usually get. I believe she grew up on an Alabama pig farm. That's part of her her allure. But yeah, I mean, she is she is out there and she's kind of peaking right at this at the right time because uh, she's getting to get the surge and all this momentum towards Election Day without that scrutiny that would come 
if you were, you know, the front runner for months. So it's going to be very interesting. I still probably expect Dr. Oz to win. We have noticed that the Trump endorsement, certainly it was the case in Ohio uh, with J.D. Vance. The Trump endorsement does matter. It happened a couple nights ago in West Virginia. Except in Oklahoma. Yeah, right, right. I mean, there, there are instances where there are exceptions to this rule, but... In Oklahoma, that candidate had endless sexual harassment allegations against him. Yeah. Again, there are always exceptions to this rule, but we have definitely seen that Republicans, by and large, are sticking with Trump. They're voting for his candidates. It'll be interesting to see what happens here uh, because McCormick and Dr. Oz are both sort of targeting the same voters and Barnett probably eats into more of Oz's people. So it it really is a three-way race here. Either way, you're going to have a Republican candidate who supports a lot of restrictions on abortion, who probably is saying, yes, I support the Supreme Court's decision. And that's not going to be a particularly popular position in Pennsylvania. I mean, you saw this uh, yesterday, Bob Casey, right? His father yeah. was the is the Casey in, in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Uh, he voted for this abortion, the Women's Health Protection Act. So there's, there's a bit of a sea change here. And I think anyone who is on the opposite side of saying, we need to dismantle Roe. I think that's a tough position for, for any politician at this point. Love to hear it, man. I mean, thank you, Matt Fuller. Not what I read on my newsletters, but I'll take <laughs> it, man. Well, you know, these things change fast, so. I think the whole idea that things don't matter is nihilism that doesn't serve anyone, but probably Donald Trump and maybe Vladimir Putin. Yeah, I think that's there's some definite truth to that. Thanks, Matt Fuller. Andy Levy. Molly Junkfest. Who is your fuck that guy today? Uh, my fuck that guy is someone we almost never talk about on this podcast. Tell me more. He's the governor of the great state of Florida. His name is uh, Ronald Santis. I think is is how it translates. <laughs> is that how you pronounce it? That's how I pronounce it, yes. It's uh, Ron DeSantis, very much known for saying he doesn't want school kids to be indoctrinated by uh, their education. He is very, very upset about critical race theory being taught to nursery schoolers, which apparently is a thing. That never happens anywhere. And also about pre-K kids being turned trans by their teachers, which is apparently also a thing that happens. Never anywhere. It's a little interesting that he has now signed into law a bill that designates November 7th in Florida as Victims of Communism Day. Which makes a lot of sense for Florida. Because you have all of these people from Cuba who you desperately want to pander to. Absolutely. But the interesting thing about this bill is there are a handful of states that have similar legislation. But Florida is the only one that mandates school instruction about this on that day. So, again, this is the guy. Remember, he wants he wants politics. He wants all of that stuff out of the classroom. He doesn't want you know, your kids being indoctrinated. Except when it comes to communism, which is he does. All of a sudden, he, he kind of does want your kids indoctrinated. And look, I'm not saying that, you know, uh, learning that Joseph Stalin was bad is is a bad thing. And I kind of get the sense that you learn that from your history classes anyway. I don't know that you need a special day for it. Like, I can't imagine walking out of a history class and thinking, that Joseph Stalin he was misunderstood. I, I, don't, I don't think that's happening. It's just very interesting that suddenly he is all about indoctrinating kids when, when that's been his big thing the whole time. So fuck that guy. Well, he's also just pandering, right? Of course. He is running for re-election in a state that has a large number of Cuban people who are displaced by Castro and ergo hate communism. By the way, I still think like it's political malpractice that Democrats don't say they're also against communism because like, what does that even mean? It means nothing, right? Like, are you against Castro's regime? Obviously you're against Castro's regime. People are dying. They don't have, you know, basic things. Like, obviously this is one of these like dumb wins that, DeSantis will get, that Democrats won't get, because Democrats can't say they're against communism, which is like, there is no, you know, where is their communism? There's no communism. Like, are you for, like, social programs? Yes. But are you for, like, communism? Not really. I mean... Except that there are, there are people who think social programs 
or communism. <laughs> so it's basically all Republicans think that, but right. ultimately, like, I don't understand why Democrats don't just take the win in Florida and be like, we're against communism too. I mean, they are, they're against Castro. He sucks. I mean, this is not rocket science. No, but this is one of those things where Democrats can never win. Like, it's like, you know, again, we've talked about this and everyone's talked about this. Like you can't no- nominate Bernie because you'll get called socialists and then you nominate Joe Biden, and all you hear is about Joe Biden and his socialist agenda. So it's like, it's one of those dumb things that like, it's just, it's going to happen anyway. Yeah. Uh, Before we run out of time, I I just, I want to know who your fuck that guy is. We spent a lot of time talking about my fuck that guy. Coincidentally, my fuck that guy is also Ron DeSantis. Oh, well. For his blatant pandering, he's been able to sort of do all of the kind of Trumpy stuff. In my mind, he's more dangerous than Trump because he's like Trump, but he's very disciplined and he's very focused, but he uses these same culture wars things. And I'm not sure that he's more like with a lot of these Republicans or not a lot, but with some of these Republicans, you really feel that they understand the status quo and want to maintain it. So even if they'll do crazy stuff, they're still not going to like stay on if they lose an election. Whereas with DeSantis, it's not clear to me that he's not that he wouldn't do something like that. DeSantis made a new map for these congressional districts. You know, there's redistricting going on, and uh, and a Florida judge, one of his judges said that I find that the enacted map is unconstitutional under the Fair Districting Amendment because it diminishes African-Americans' ability to elect representatives of their choosing. And DeSantis called the map race-neutral, even though it makes it harder for North Florida voters to elect a black member of Congress in the 5th District. Of course it does. And for that, Ron DeSantis gets a hearty fuck you. Amen. On that note, we'll wrap this episode of The New Abnormal from The Daily Beast. In future episodes, we'll be talking to smart folks from The Daily Beast and beyond from media, culture, politics, and science who will help us understand what's happening to our country and the world. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and share the show on social media. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again on the next episode. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.